are listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and credo-Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here with... Skylar. Skylar. And, uh, yeah, we're looking today at, uh, well, it's listed as four epistles, but... They don't really say anything about old little Philemon. So, yeah, it's mostly First, Second Timothy, and Titus. Yep. But Philemon's on there. At least made the page. Philemon just doesn't get any, any street cred. Anyway. So, I'm, I'm just curious. This is just uh, for Funzie's question. What, what in the last, you know, month or two? What has been the most enjoyable thing you've read in the last month or two? Boy. See Just like this was like candy for my brain. Could be anything. Candy anything for my brain. Does something come to immediately to your mind? Oh, yeah. Because I've been, you know, traveling. And when I travel, I often will read fiction. And I started a series and I've... I've you know, got back into it, working on wrapping it up. But it's, uh, I, and I can't remember if I've mentioned it on the podcast before because I started a few months back and then just hadn't traveled and then picked it back up while I was traveling. But it's really good. So Andrew Peterson is a well-known singer-songwriter, reform guy, um, writes really beautiful Christian music, worship music, things like that. He also started a publishing house called The Rabbit Room, uh, publishing house and they publish uh, just aesthetically beautiful books and beautiful literature. And so their publishing house actually is focusing on publishing lots of poetry and things like that. So there's actually a three volume set of, uh, of some, some books are called every moment. Holy. I'm going to grab one real quick. Do it. Okay. So here's an example. I'm going to read some of the titles for you and you pick one and I'll read it. This is just an example. <laughs> We're getting really off uh, topic here. Okay. So these are a, a series of liturgies hmm. of just daily life. So you got for arriving at the ocean. I'm just reading random ones for stargazing for feasting with friends uh, to mark the first hearth fire of the season uh, for the ritual of morning coffee. Pick one. Let's do morning coffee. Okay. All right. Predictable. Yep. That's a good one. Let's do it. 135. Okay. Here you go. And you can see, you know, they, they do <clears throat> really cool art. Oh, yeah. On the pages, too. Wow. Um, a liturgy for the ritual of morning coffee. Meet me, O Christ, in this stillness of morning. Move me, O Spirit, to quiet my heart. Mend me, O Father, from yesterday's harms. From the discords of yesterday, resurrect my peace. From the discouragements of yesterday, resurrect my hope. From the weariness of yesterday, resurrect my strength. From the doubts of yesterday, resurrect my faith. From the wounds of yesterday, resurrect my love. Let me enter this day aware of my need and awake. To your grace, O Lord. Amen. And, uh, yeah, some are longer than others. So, <clears throat> anyways, so, yeah, and it's just a beautiful book. And they're coming out with volume three. I think they just did, so I'm probably going to pick that up. Um, 
volume two is all on like death, grief, and suffering, That's which awesome. I think is really good because we just we just don't talk about that kind of stuff enough these days. But um, anyway, so the book I've been reading is written by Andrew Peterson, who started this publishing house, and it's a fiction series that is written for. It's kind of in the Narnia category. You know, so it's it's written where children can absorb it and enjoy it, probably older children. Um, but then it's also very enjoyable for adults, and he is an exceptional storyteller. So it's called The Wing Feather Saga, and it's four volumes, and I'm just now getting pretty deep into the fourth volume. And, uh, yeah, it's really good. So highly recommend that. If any of you are fiction readers, check out Andrew Peterson, the wing feather saga. Uh, I will say for me anyways, it took, it took, uh, it took about probably half the first book for me to get into it. So, um, it, you know, it's a slow start, but that's because he's doing character development and the action doesn't really start to pick up until a little later on, but it's really good. All right, your turn. Okay. I, I'll mention two books. One that I was using to prep for today, though, we may not even get to it, but read it before, but it came to mind looking at their manual. It's a book called Christianity at the Crossroads by Michael Kruger. And it's a great introduction and analysis of the second century church. So this is between the age of the apostles, the era of the apostles, and the council of Nicaea. And, um, that's beautiful. What is that? That is my tablet randomly playing music <laughs> for reasons that I cannot understand. Well, I mean, there we go. Maybe it likes Michael Kruger. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's great. Great. Um, the, I, I, I guess when you said the last book that you just love, love, um, would be Lane Tipton's, uh, Trinitarian theology of Cornelius Van Til. Yeah. I think that's one of my favorite books ever. Made it to the top. Oh, it's so good. Awesome. So good. And I think it's it's one of those books, too, where in a sense it's a robust defense of some of Van Til's, um, not just philosophy, but mm-hmm. why he deals with the Trinity the way he does. Yeah. And showing that it is absolutely orthodox, uh, contrary to what a lot of critics will say. Mm-hmm. But it's also a book you leave singing, right? Worshiping yeah. this great God that's we worship good. as well. And um, so that's, yeah, that would be my answer. Good stuff. Awesome. Well, let's jump on into it, shall we? Because I feel it. like we've got a lot to cover we today. Have a lot. Yep. Um, so we are looking at the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum. And uh, if you happen to be new to the podcast, which I, you know, know we got, we have new people every once in a while. That's what we do week in and week out, at least through the rest of this year. So we are on week, I think 44, right? 44, something Something like that. that. So we have been uh, using the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum as two creedal Christian or evangelical Christian guys to interact with LDS thought. And uh, of course, um, brother Skyler over here does a lot of deep dive into more LDS thought that undergirds the things that we're seeing in the Come Follow Me curriculum. So we're just using this really as a springboard. Um, so we have the normal um, sort of stuff that we've seen all week uh, or all all year rather. Um, in the first line, which is just an encouragement to the teacher. And I say the thoughts and impressions that come to you will help you direct class members to relevant scripture passages and bring the spirit 
into your classroom. And then they go on into the invite sharing section and say it can be helpful when people are having successes and challenges in studying the scriptures to let your people in your class share about the successes and challenges that they're having both individually and as a family. So there's an invite sharing uh, encouragement there. And then we get into the teach the doctrine. And I'm going to run through all of this real quick, and then we're going to come back and really settle primarily on what we see in the first section though the last section here has a lot of relevance to the topic as well. Uh, but let me just go ahead and, and fill this out. So the first section that we have tells readers to consider all of First and Second Timothy and Titus. And as you consider the whole of those books, it gives you this subtitle as what you ought to know or understand from an LDS perspective. They say, understanding true doctrine will help us avoid being deceived. <laughs> so so the LDS teaching right, right here is you need to understand true doctrine, because if you don't understand true doctrine, you're susceptible to being deceived. Now, stick with us, because we are going to really take to task the, the, the even claim that there is true doctrine in an LDS system. Um, of course, we would say in First and Second Timothy and Titus, there absolutely is true doctrine. But what is LDS doctrine? And we're going to talk about that in depth here in just a moment. But they say in the first line of the explanation under that subtitle, the members of your class are living in a time when it can be difficult to determine what is true and what is false. And we want to really make an argument today that the LDS church is not helping with that problem. In fact, uh, the patterns that we're seeing in the LDS church, which are implicit to the system as a whole, have they've always been there, are causing many LDS people to have uncertainty of what they are supposed to believe is true and what they are supposed to believe is false. So I don't want to lead us in discussion there. I know you're probably chomping at the bits I to am. jump in on it right there. But uh, yeah, we're going <laughs> to we're gonna keep moving through this and then come back to settle on that primarily. So they do touch on 1 Timothy 4, uh, 10 to 16, which um, is... Uh, well, let me just read a little bit for, of it for us here. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to the exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice yourself, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. And of course, this is going to be one of the passages that they're going to highlight. And they say from this, be thou, this is the subtitle, be thou an example to the believers. They say, it's possible that members of your class don't realize the power of the good example they are setting. Consider inviting them to talk about how people they know, including class members, have been examples of disciples of Christ. It might help the discussion if you list on the board the words found in verse 12 there, like word, conversation, which it put a subtitle and say the word conversation can also mean conduct or behavior, then charity, spirit, faith, and purity. Class members could discuss how we can be examples of the believers in each of these ways. So the focus is put, of course, even in that section, heavily on what kind of an example are you setting. 
Yeah. And that's no surprise for those who've been checking with us through all this. Everything is just this theologically liberal, let's deduce the fundamentals of the faith, not to the doctrine, which is what we're going to talk about, but more so just to the morals, the the system of how you can become a better you. Yeah. And so it's all about example, example. Exactly. And they really mean that they can evangelize based on just how they live. Yeah. And, um, and that, this is how they do evangelism, too. Right. It's very much, it, let's invite you into the community, start coming to our stuff, see how good our lives are. Uh, there's a book that's written by a woman who is an evangelical Christian in Arkansas. And is the, the book title is Out of Mormonism. But she was an evangelical Christian, and her husband started doing business with LDS people in Arizona. And they just saw the example of these people's lives. And this is her whole thing. That what attracted them to Mormonism was the good-looking lifestyle and things like that. And so they ended up converting to Mormonism, moved all the way to Utah, got really involved in the faith. And then after a number of years, it was through her reading of the Bible that she started to see discrepancies and uh, just she wasn't mature enough as an evangelical Christian, hadn't been discipled well Mm -hmm. in what the Word of God taught. And so it was just a very weak Christian. And uh, and when she started actually studying the Word for herself, she started to see all the things that didn't line up. And that's what eventually led her out of Mormonism. But yeah, that, that is the model oftentimes is let's just live our example and that's what will attract people to the faith. It's not so much the teaching, it's the example we can set. For sure, that uh, fake Francis quote, um, you know, uh, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words or whatever it is. It's oh, a yes. stupid quote. Yeah. But that is actually true of the LDS gospel. And they, they even say in their seminary manual that if we are examples of the believers of Jesus, we can help bring salvation to ourselves and others. Notice, if we are examples... And the seminary teacher is supposed to testify the power that a good example of living the gospel can have on those who see it. They have one quick quote I wanted to include just to also show the difference in anthropology that's necessary for this kind of emphasis. They include a quote from the young woman general president, Bonnie Corden, I think it's Cordon. And she says, my dear friends, why is shining our light so important? See, it's about shining your light. Um, and then she basically says, you know, there's a lot of people that would come to the truth, but, you know, of course, ignorance is the problem, according to the DNC 123. Um, we can help. We can intentionally shine our light. That's the solution. <laughs> I testify the Lord will magnify every small effort. Such attempts may require us to step out of our comfort zone, but we can be assured that the Lord will help our light shine. So, you know, Jesus is their co-pilot, I guess. Yeah, yep. And uh, then you get just more in the next section of the sort of inspirational um, how to be a better you kind of a thing from 2 Timothy 1. And in particular, they quote from just verse 7. And uh, in the version that they put here, it says, God hath not given us, this is the subtitle and the verse, God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 
So in the ESV, that is, uh, of course, the latter half of a full sentence and says, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And then they say uh, in the section underneath that, the explanation of this, they said that this in this week's outline in the individual and family manual, it suggests looking at 2 Timothy for counsel Paul gave to encourage Timothy in his ministry. Now, look at how they turn this. Ask class members to share any insights they found, or you could give them a few minutes in the class to find and share some of Paul's counsel. They could also share an experience when God helped them overcome their fears and gave them the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, again, we just want to show very quickly how they're cherry-picking Scripture here um, so badly because this is really centered in a context of encouraging Timothy to live in light of the truth that he has received. And so if you go up to 2 Timothy 1, starting verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as I did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You want to hear the gospel? Verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the de- until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have received from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This isn't just about overcoming whatever random, abstract, obscure fears that you may have. (laughs) This is about holding fast to the words of the gospel and continuing to preach them to people who are dying and who need salvation, which only comes by hearing and receiving the word of truth that Timothy himself has heard and received, the faith that is in him. He needs to preach the gospel so that through faith in that gospel, other people can come to be saved too, even if it means he's going to be severely persecuted for it. Um, Because he's, Paul, of course, is telling him, share in my sufferings. I'm suffering for the gospel. I'm suffering because I'm preaching this message. Do as I'm doing. Suffer in this and do not fear. Um, That's the context. It's not about like whatever random boogeyman that you're fearing in your closet. Um, this is about preaching the truth, the body of truth, right? Um, which is just, the gospel. I love that phrase, the pattern of sound words yeah. to, to guard the faith, right? Yep. And this is, of course, one of the bases of um, Christians having creeds, right? <laughs> to, to guard the faith with the pattern of sound words. Yep. 
for sure. Okay. Uh, and then the last section is Second Timothy 3, which, um, man, is just one of my favorites in the Bible. Uh, and uh, it, boy, wow. Yeah. Okay, so here's the subtitle for Second Timothy 3. And, and by the way, let me just read a couple of lines from Second Timothy 3 because you got to hear the context of this too. I'll start in verse uh, 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in, in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, it says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, Timothy's not supposed to be seeking after something new and novel. He's supposed to be going back to the sound words that he has been taught. He's supposed to be going back to study the scripture. And uh, the reason is because all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is from God. This is God's word. Um, It is his objective revelation of himself so that we can know who he is. Um, So this is how the LDS Church takes this passage. They say, studying the scriptures can help us overcome the perils of the last days. After warning Timothy about perilous times to come, Paul testified of the power and importance of the scriptures. To begin a discussion about how the scriptures can strengthen us in difficult times, you can invite class members to review Paul's description of the perils of the last days. Uh, Then they could search for scriptures that have helped them guard against perils like these. How has studying the scriptures protected us from troubles in today's world? So again, it's all, but it's all again, just it's not about... I need to study so I can know God and know who he is and right. find safety and comfort in him. It's like, what kind of practical tips did you pick up as you went through this right. sort of a thing? And protection in an LDS context, it has a more charismatic meaning. Mm. It's spiritual protection points. It's it's boosting your armor. Yeah. And notice, so how is studying the scriptures protected? It's not informed, Yeah. not confronted, not clarified. You get spiritual points. You're, you're filling your spiritual bank account. Mm. And uh, yeah. Then it's a means. Yeah. It's never an end. Yep. <clears throat> they, f- they finish this section by saying, studying Paul's counsel about the power of the scriptures could be an opportunity for class members to encourage each other in their efforts to study the word of God. We sure do hope that people do start to dive into the word of God and take it as it ought to be. Sure. But, but it almost makes um, it worse, right? Because if they treat it this way and yet still call it the word of God, it inoculates them to know what we mean when we say that. Yeah, yeah. Like we see word of God and see that is exceptional. Yep. Whereas for yep. them, it's like, oh yeah, maybe the Tao Te Ching and the Bhagavad Gita and Book of Mormon and yeah. this. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you, if you talk to popular LDS anyway, you're right. Yep. Yep. And what, what you're referring to there really is that the LDS way of understanding their doctrine doesn't, really come from being centered on the scriptures at all. And at, so at any point. Let's turn back to that first section. And uh, Skylar, I'm just going to turn it over to you to get us to focus on what is LDS doctrine. All right, wow. You're going to answer that question for us today, are you not? You're going you're gonna <laughs> to pin it down and be like, this is exactly oh. and objectively how LDS people know what they're supposed to believe. And, uh, you know... <laughs> That's what that's what you're doing for us. Is that right? Okay. Let me just point out the irony that you already showed, of course. This is the teach the doctrine section of the manual. 
the heading, sorry, the explanation above, right? Understanding true doctrine will help us avoid being deceived. It then talks about sharing experiences in which the power of true doctrine blesses. It's about the importance of true doctrine, and they never define doctrine. They not they don't define it. And I mean, I think I'm not sure exactly how to start, honestly, on this subject. It is incredibly frustrating, and I I guarantee almost anyone. And by the way, within the Mormon community, it's just as bad. What is Mormon doctrine? What is authoritative? What is binding? And what ends up happening is that no one knows. Yep. I mean, no one can, the church certainly doesn't define it. They will, they will say things like this. Neil Anderson, who's one of the 12, will has a talk called the trial of your faith. And one of those trials is of course, you know, when somebody stumbles onto the internet and I don't know, finds out the truth about the LDS church. Um, and he, he says this, a few question their faith when they find a statement made by a church leader decades ago that seems incongruent with our doctrine. Well, what is your doctrine? There is an important principle that governs the doctrine of the church. Okay. So Neil Anderson's going to tell us the important principle that governs the doctrine of the church. The doctrine is taught by all 15 members of the first presidency and quorum of the 12. It is not hidden in an obscure paragraph of one talk. True principles are taught frequently and by many. Our doctrine is not difficult to find. And of course, that obfuscates at best, because guess who didn't teach this? The rest of the 14, 15. <laughs> mm-hmm. So here's one leader, apostle, not president of the church, trying to define the parameters of doctrine is all 15 having taught on a subject and saying that's not difficult. I No one's saying it's hard to find. I have 26 volumes Mm-hmm. of early Mormon church sermons. Yeah. <laughs> it's not hard to find. What's what's hard is seeing what is authoritative at yeah. any given point. And honestly, I it, it seems like it changes day by day, person to person. Yep. Because even here, have all 15 Neil Anderson taught this? No. Brigham Young said, if I've preached it and been able to review it, it's as good as scripture. Yep. Did did Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith taught plenty of things that not all 15 agreed on. In fact, many left the church as he taught them, including Mm -hmm. general authorities at points, right? Yep. Or, or, you know, even, uh, and I know people say, but was it over doctrine? I'm just saying that there were schisms in the hierarchy of the church because of Joseph saying, no, I've learned from the Lord that, you know, we got to do this bank or whatever. Yep. So do you see how he, he totally didn't address the issue? Because is it hard to find? It is absolutely hard to find what's binding. As LD, as an LDS, this was the most frustrating question. As a post-LDS is the most frustrating question. Yeah. If you talk to someone on the street and you say, hey, well, you know, uh, do you believe what? I mean, what are some of the things you encounter? Do you believe you can become a god? Mm-hmm. You'll get 130 different answers. Yeah. 
And if you point out Joseph Smith, they'll say, well, it's not Nelson. If you point out Nelson, they'll say, well, that's not Joseph Smith. If you point out Brigham Young, they'll say that doesn't matter, even though they claim authority through him necessarily. <laughs> if you point out a first presidency statement, they say it's not all 15. You point out all 15, it's like, well, is a declaration canonical? You point out a manifesto, you show that their behavior, they didn't actually employ me when they claim to. They'll say, well, it did. Well, they'll say, we don't believe that. Or we don't, even though Nelson sealed more than one woman, Oaks is sealed to more than one woman. This is wrestling a ghost. Yep. And I, I don't know how to talk about it without getting more and more frustrated. Yeah. So let me give examples. Uh, I try not to focus too much on Bruce R. McConkie, but he's a big deal. <laughs> he writes a book called Mormon Doctrine and people who like it, Say, yeah, there we go. It's very clear and all this. People who don't will point out not all the general authorities agreed. And then mm -hmm. they'll create some, they, they find a quote where there's an error on every page. It's like, but they've never released the errors that yeah. they claim. Yeah. Because once again, to to critique Bruce R means to be more clear than Bruce R. And that's not what they like. And really, behind all of this, people have to realize there are people benefiting from the chaos. Mm-hmm. Because what it creates is absolute dependence on the current leaders yeah. to define truth. And if you define doctrine as truth, then you cannot say, well, just at least doctrine for the church. No, 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 no. They'll say at one hand, doctrine is all truth. Then they'll take stances where reasonable people agree. Then they'll say, oh, but it's by direct revelation. But then the direct revelations contradict. So then they have to find a way to sift them. And then you're ultimately left wondering, what's this? And then all of a sudden you just have Christopher. I mean, I've got Christopherson, I've got Nelson, I've got Neil Anderson, all saying, well, it's obvious, it's easy. I mean, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, it's not hidden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got 26 volumes, 300 plus sermons of Brigham Young, in which clearly he taught Michael was God, the yeah. father of our spirits, the father of Jesus Christ yep. for three decades. Yeah. And yes, we get, have glimpses of disagreement, but it was taught in the temple. And, and yet people say, well, no, that, no it's a, that's not doctrine. He calls it a revelation. He says, Joseph taught it. He says it's good as, as good as scripture. <laughs> they almost discipline Orson Pratt for not accepting it. Yeah. It's in the temple is not doctrine. Oh, that's policy. Yeah. See, it's just, yeah, it's amazing how there's such a, just a weird, um, just disconnect and how they make these claims. It's not hard to identify, uh, but then it's impossible to know the difference between what you're supposed to believe is true and what is not, but how frequently they talk about the fact that it's easy, I think is what stands out to me and yeah. how frequently they talk about the importance of truth. Uh, you know, we, we were talking about the uh, general conference talk just last week um, that was given by uh, Elder, you know, John C. Pentagree yep. Jr. Yep. of the 70, and the title is Eternal Truth. <laughs> and uh, he, he says, uh, so what is our understanding of truth in today's world? We are constantly bombarded with strong opinions, biased reporting, and incomplete data. At the same time, the volume and sources of this information are proliferating. Our need to recognize truth has never been more important. Truth is critical for us to establish and strengthen our relationship with God, find peace and joy, and reach our potential, divine potential. Today, let us consider the following questions. What is truth, and why is it important? How do we find truth? 
when we find truth, how do we share it? And then they go on, he goes on, he says, truth is eternal. The Lord has taught us in scripture that truth is knowledge of things as they are and as they were and as they are to come. It was not created or made and has no end. Truth is absolute, fixed, and immutable. In other words, truth is eternal. Truth helps us avoid deception, discern good from evil, receive protection, and find comfort and healing. Truth can also guide our actions, make us free, sanctify us, and lead us to eternal life. Now, listen to how he's going to try to tell us that we can come to find truth. He says, God reveals eternal truth to us through a network of revelatory relationships. Okay, so let's start to muddy the water right away. Let's just, it's, you need to know it, but let's, just consider how confusing it is to figure out what is true in this system. It's a network of revel, uh, revelatory relationships involving himself, God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost. Of course, there are three separate beings and persons, right. prophets, and us. <laughs> Let us discuss the distinct yet interconnected roles that each participant plays. And he says, first, God is the source of all truth. That's uh, just... Yeah, I, I, I'll skip over most of that. So second, now this is the bread and butter, really. Second, the Holy Ghost testifies of all truth. He reveals truth to us directly and witnesses of truth taught by others. Impressions, listen to this, and if you've been with us, you know, <laughs> impressions from the Spirit typically come as thoughts to our minds and feelings to our hearts. So that's the second way is this work of the Holy Ghost. All of it, of course, is coming from God. But when it comes down to the bread and butter of how you know it's true, it's by the thoughts that come to your mind and the feelings that come into your heart. Okay, that's as subjective as you can possibly get. And then they say, third, prophets receive truth from God and share truth with us. We learn the truth from past prophets in the scriptures and from living prophets at general conference and through other official channels. And then, of course, he turns it to the self, right? Finally, you and I play a crucial role in this process. God expects us to seek, recognize, and act on truth. So it's on you, friend. Uh, if you're an LDS person, God expects you to be the one who can seek and recognize and act on the truth. <laughs> Good luck, because it's, uh, you know, I don't know how, yeah. you, how you know whether or not you're recognizing the right truth or not. Right. I mean, um, you know, there's no, there's no expectation given here except for the one that he says outright, right there. Uh, well, it's, it comes through the prophets and stuff too, but. Right, but when, when do when all fifteen think black skin is a mark of unfaithfulness yep. in the pre-mortal world? Yep. The curse of Cain, and I know the pre-mortal stuff wasn't Brigham Young, but it became that. On the racism episode, I read you a first presidency letter. There was more than one. Yep, and that then they in a of course in a um, gospel topics essay. With no first presidency recommendation, by the way. They won't put their names on that. They know how to do that. They did it to the True the Faith manual. They don't put it there. They renounce all theories. But they say it's not a policy or theory. They say it's a doctrine. Yep. So that's the thing is that you have to say the truth changes. But that's what they do. They say, well, the truth doesn't change. And then I guess it's just the member's fault for not being able to identify when something's a doctrine and when something's a policy. Yeah, yeah. And I'll just give like a small example of why this is a problem because you got to understand that what they are saying is that the truth is not ultimately discerned by what is in the scriptures or by what is said by a prophet. Ultimately, in their system, the truth is determined by what feels right and feels good to you. So so even with the scriptures, they say the Bible is the word of God, what? 
insofar as it is translated, interpreted, translated correctly. Yeah. So how do you know whether a line is correct or not? You know, like, right. Of course, it's supposed to be by whatever has been interpreted for you by the apostles and prophets, but it's so much more loose than that. I mean, Mm -hmm. it really is. Ultimately, does it feel good? And I'll just give you an example. You know, I I was talking to one person who at the last general conference was was deeply upset by the change in policy that LDS people could now have multiple piercings and tattoos because she was convicted being, you know, raised in this understanding that you should not get tattoos. And like, that was a, that was a deep feeling uh, that that is true. And then the LDS church says, well, we're going to update our policies and now you can have and tattoos they got rid of and that. it's all good to go. This is news to and me, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And so, oh, you didn't know this? No. Yeah, this was in the last general conference. Man, I thought my tattoos would be distinctive. Yeah, well, not anymore. Well, I'm going to have to get them removed if all the LDS start <laughs> That's getting right. tattoos. I'll That's get right. removed to good, stand out. <laughs> good time to get into the tattoo business <laughs> in Provo, Utah. Wow. But, uh, yeah, but, well, you yeah, know, but, like... Did the you, spirit change his mind? Well, yeah, but, I mean, think even the fact that she felt deep conviction about those things and felt that that was true. And now she's being told your feelings were wrong on it, <laughs> but it's like, but everyone the, was told to feel it, bad about having tattoos. It was the and president now, of the church. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's the kind of example that we're talking about is if, if what you know to be true uh, can only be discerned by this subjective feeling that apparently is the Holy Ghost. Well, what do you do when the church just up and changes a policy that you once felt very convicted about, and now it is apparently okay uh, to do that which was once forbidden? Right. It, it's it's so weird. I mean, even with the plurality of wives, and I know people who believe it, they distinguish plurality of wives and polygamy, whatever. But listen, Hebrew C. Kimball was Brigham Young's right-hand man, uh, Joseph loved him in the first presidency. We've mentioned him quite a few times. Listen to this. You might as well deny Mormonism and turn away from it as to oppose the plurality of wives. Let the presidency of this church and the 12 apostles and all the authorities unite and say with one voice that they will oppose that doctrine and the whole of them would be damned. Hmm. Journal Discourses, Volume 5, page 203. I mean, in Wolford Woodruff, I've mentioned this before, I think in the false prophecy episode, where he spoke at the Manti Temple and said, we won't quit practicing plural marriage until Christ comes. And even then, Bruce R. McConkie, he says, when Christ comes, he's going to reinstitute it. Yep. And here's the thing, they'll say, no, we don't, you, you say to them, no, we don't, we don't uh, practice that anymore. And once again, yes, you do. You just don't do it the same way. Yeah. So they will try to find this continuity even when it comes to basically word games to give the impression that they don't believe it anymore. Yep. And um, so, so there's, um, there's so much to be said here, but basically I just, we don't have time to show this, but maybe in the future we can basically you could do an episode like we're doing picking whatever standard they will say, like Neil Anderson's all 15 and show where they, it doesn't hold up. Yeah. Right? So, um, in Bruce R. McConkie's Mormon doctrine, under doctrine, right? He says, true doctrine comes from God, right? And false doctrines are from beneath. 
right? And any false doctrine, uh, you know, men will fall short of salvation in the celestial world. So true doctrines are always found in the Lord's true church, right? Because of the channel of communication between God and his people is open, right? Whereas false doctrines abound in churches which deny contemporary revelation and consequently have no sure way of checking various views and concepts to see if they conform to the mind and will of deity. <laughs> and what's yeah. funny is, you know, I'm not saying we don't have our debates and there aren't fuzzy areas, you know, there's definitely adiaphora. There's primary, secondary, tertiary standards in Christianity and primary, secondary, tertiary doctrines in Christianity. And, um, and there, I feel like every distinctive tradition of Christianity has a mere Christianity impulse and a high, robust confessional impulse mm-hmm. that's distinctive. So it, I'm not I'm not trying to give the impression to any LDS listener that we don't have our disagreements. Yeah, but where the disagreements are strongest tend to be more of this baseline distinction between is it Scripture that defines it or Scripture plus? Yeah. And here's what Mormonism tries to hide as a scripture plus, even though culturally they're more on the Protestant side. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're really not though. They're not a sect of Protestantism. Maybe culturally, historically, but it's something else. But still, they try to say we're scripture plus. But my point is, scripture never rules. Yeah, scripture. Ne- I want I want an example of an any LDS ever that was shown the Shema and changed their mind about the plurality of gods, mm-hmm. or were shown where Jesus says, I am the way, never says he's just an example of one to follow it. And they'll change their mind. They don't change their mind from Bible verses. Yeah, They don't change their mind. And that shows they're not a scriptural standard at all. And that is a huge difference with Rome, where at least they'll say scripture is inerrant, infallible. It is determinative. They just let these other sources come in and shape how they will interpret it. Mm -hmm. They won't let us speak consistently. Protestantism commits to let it speak consistently. And then it it is, there are debates and disputes. And, but if, if the diversity of Protestantism is because there's no divine voice, as we saw um, last week with Talmadge, what do you do with the diversity of Mormonism? That's so extreme that literally, you know, one afternoon I can go with you to BYU and I will get 12 different versions of Mormonism with 12 different people. Yep. So, but apparently that that doesn't disprove them, right? So let me just give you a couple more quotes from McConkie and move on to some others, right? He says, that apostles and prophets have been set in the church for the purpose of teaching and identifying true doctrine. And yet that's not what they're doing. Even when they try to define or push back on treating everything Brigham Young said as doctrine, they'll never define it. They'll mm-hmm. always put some loophole, like even with this Oaks talk recently, right? Yeah. Family of the Proclamation, and please listen to that episode. It was one of my favorites this year. Mm-hmm. It is not set that the proclamations are doctrinal. Yeah. They're doctrinal until they're changed, and then they become policy. But they, he says what? Founded on irrevocable doctrine. Yep. He doesn't say it's irrevocable doctrine. He's, a, he's an attorney. He's on the Utah, Utah Supreme Court. He knows what he's doing there. They will always leave room for change because they have to. Yep. And um, so it says, if a church has no prophets and apostles, then it has no way of knowing whether its doctrines are true and false. And yet, just look around. The difference is enormous, right? The, the you know, where we debate um, interpretation, certain passages, how to prioritize certain things, whatever, that, you know, we at least have the same standard that doesn't change. Right. 
you know, and but for them, they're saying, "Oh, this is how you get rid of the problem." And instead, it's increasing the problem. Yep. What is Mormon doctrine today? I have no idea what it is. Yeah, uh, Joseph Smith, he says, um, just to to show, and, and yet you know, which Joseph Smith, this gentleman that gave the talk recently on doctrine policy, he starts with the nature of the Godhead. But if yeah. you look at the Book of Mormon, it's not what Joseph Smith teaches in Nauvoo. It's not a plurality of gods. It's a heresy of the Trinity. It's not the Trinity that's, unfortunately, a lot of uh, Mormons will miss this. It's it's not the Trinity. Uh, we do not see, the, the Son is not the Father. Yeah. Right? Jesus saying, I am the Father and the Son. That <laughs> mm-hmm. it, It's uh, heretical uh, from Christianity, but it's not Christianity. But it's still monotheistic and putting Jesus in some modalistic way um, on the God side of the line. That's not what Joseph Smith teaches yeah. later on. And yet he'll say, I never told you I was perfect, but there is no error in the revelations which I have taught. Must I then be thrown away as a thing of not? So that's Joseph Smith. I've, there's no errors in what I've taught. And yet even with him, is there one God? Is there many? Is there a hell? Is there not? These things, we've been covering this all year. Polygamy, is monogamy evil? Right? Um, here's statements of the first presidency, right? Our doctrines are open to the world. The theology of our church is the theology taught by Jesus Christ and his apostles. We've seen all year long. That's not true. I, so I want to do a bonus episode. And I, I had this idea of five teachings of Jesus, right? Out of the mouth of the historical Jesus is found in the gospels <clears throat> that no Mormon can agree to. Yeah. And I ha- now have a list of 12, <laughs> and I, this is just thinking for five minutes. I'm like, I've got 12 words out, right? Phrases, whatever. Yeah. Teachings out of the mouth of Jesus, not even including like John 1 or anything, yep. you know, any apostolic interpretation, which I see as equally authoritative by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. But just, just teach like no marriage in heaven. God is Spirit. I will build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. The scripture is the word of God. God spoke to you saying, yeah. they don't believe that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet they'll say our theology is taught by Jesus' apostles, the theology of scripture and reason. That's in 1907. Right. I have, once again, I've got a packet around 200 pages of Michael God's stuff. It's not just Brigham Young. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost everybody. Yep. Um, and yet I've got in, uh, I've got the volumes of the messages of the first presidency. Um, Right, this is volume five. You think, oh, first presidency, that's a standard. They have an entire one on Adam saying, no, 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 that, you know, that's not what Brigham Young taught, blah, 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 right? Um, in uh, 1912. Um, here's one that I think gets not enough attention John A. Witzow, Evidences and Reconciliations. And he has a section on when does a prophet speak as a prophet? So that is the explicit question. When does a prophet speak as a prophet? He makes a distinction, which does make sense, right, between official and unofficial actions and utterances. Uh, we kind of do the same with the apostles. We're not saying everything Paul ever said in his entire life, mm-hmm. but we are saying everything that was preserved in the Scripture yeah. is. Um, so he says that... Whenever moved upon by the Spirit of the Lord, the man called to the prophet's office assumes the prophetic mantle, mantle and speaks as a mouthpiece of the Lord. 
and that such deliverances are binding. And there's no need for debate concerning their validity. Mm-hmm. So this is this is the most obvious definition, right? Which is, obviously, if you are one of the 15 prophets, seers, and revelators, and you're speaking in official capacity, especially in general conference, at least that, it should be doctrine. And yet, even as an LDS, let's just say something political. Mm-hmm. What happens is that Republican Mormons will cite a whole host of people and talks. Democrat Mormons will cite a whole host of people and talks that are re- irreconcilable. Yeah. And what they do is they play the quote game and weaponize it against the other person. And then what do they do? They call out their faithfulness. They call it, are you listening to prophets? All thinking it's inspired and speaking as if they know, bearing their testimony at each other mm-hmm. over which is the political direction uh, that should be, you know, it's typically American politics. Let's get real. Mormonism is American religion. Um, so it's, <laughs> that's the thing is that even the, though that's the most obvious definition, Rasband, is it Rasband that recently had this talk yeah. where, let me, let me just read this. This is just because it's fresh in the news, right? Um, he, he has a talk um, called Jesus Christ is what? The treasure. Yeah, is the treasure. In which he says, as an eight-year-old, I had mistakenly presumed that the water of baptism washed away sins. Not so. Yeah. In just this, <laughs> what is one of the articles of faith, right? Baptism for the remission of sins. Mm-hmm. I, I I wonder. And once again, uh, thank you, Rasband, for a apparently trying to do what several before you have done, and that is as one of these standards that we haven't gotten to yet is that maybe a pre, a president of the church can change official teaching. So if a president of the church has spoken something, a future president of the church of equal authority, right, can change it. Yeah. Okay. That kind of makes sense. But then you just have these activist elders in the Quorum of the Twelve. Uh, Oaks was one of them uh, when it came to Benson's politics um, and views of government. Um, he's lobbying for whatever reason at a doctrine that... You know, as, as we're wondering, what's consistent from 1830 to today? Well, he made me aware of one. I, I wonder if there's a single LDS baptism ever that did not teach that, mm-hmm. that, that the baptism washed away sins. Right. Think about it. They have to be of the right authority in the right space, the right age, the right process, people of a certain authority witnessing, full immersion, right words, exactly said the right way. Yep. To not have a power associated with it. Yep. Yep. Apparently just <laughs> you need it done exactly right to not even get the result that every, I've been at so many LDS baptisms and that has always been the thing. Yeah. And he doubles down like, right when you're like, what, what he says in the year since my baptism, I have learned that the sins are cleansed by the power of Jesus Christ through his atoning sacrifice as we make and keep the baptismal covenant. Then through the gift of repentance, we can remain clean. And so on. So he doubles down on this. And here's the thing. I even heard a post-Mormon commentator say, wow, the one day of my life where I thought I was enough. Yep. No. Now they took that away. It's gone. Right. But here's, here's, this, here's someone speaking 
in general conference and completely contradicting the articles of faith. Every, every manual ever. I have my preach my gospel. I have true to the faith. I have gospel principles. All teach this. Yep. In Rasband, the rebel, the Jacobin yep. can go say it. And here's the weirdest part. Only the post-Mormons and people critical of him are the ones calling it out oh, yeah. that I'm seeing. Yep. So anyways, though I agree with what so that this is the most logical view of authority based on teaching, it's amazing that he has no need for debate concerning the validity when clearly all those conference talks with Michael God in it, the law of adoption, whatever, the gathering being literal in the early days of the church, now it's all spiritualized. Mm -hmm. And he'll say no need for debate concerning their validity, at least if they're said in the official capacity in general conference. Yeah. But what do you do when they contradict? So they must either be accepted or be subjected to the dangers of private interpretation. Such official prophetic utterances to the church are usually made in the great general conferences of the church or in signed statements circulated among the people, right? The phrase, thus saith the Lord, may at times be used, but is not necessary. When the prophet speaks to the people in an official gathering or over his signature, he speaks as the Lord directs him. If a new doctrine or practice be involved in the revelation, it is presented to the people for acceptance, and that's the common consent thing that's part of the issue with some of these declarations and I mean, they took the lectures on the faith out, but have they really included the declarate like family proclamation in, um, sorry, I, I said declaration second ago. I meant proclamations. Yeah. Um, but in recognition of the free agency of the church itself, but once accepted is there for, thereafter binding upon every member. So he does go through, um, and say the prophet is at all times to have most influence. So this is a shift to the top. Whereas with Neil Anderson, right? We have a shift toward the bottom where it's all 15, um, and, uh, and yet of course the burden of proof quote is upon the hearer, not alone on the speaker. Cause you know, it's the spirit that's going to convict you. But of course, if you're not, con you know, if you're not convinced, then you, the, you have to examine yourself. You're the problem. Yeah. So as long as it agrees with them, then it's the spirit. Now he cites this Brigham Young quote, and this is something that I had missed before. This is today for me. I had already grabbed the ninth volume of the Journal of Discourses, just to show how weird that this can get. Um, President Brigham Young. Um, and then I saw this quote from uh, Brigham Young. And keep in mind, John Woodso, he's the one who edited the discourses of Brigham Young. So he doesn't cite the Journal of Discourses. Uh, they rarely do. They can get away with it. So I went to his discourses of Brigham Young and found the journal discourse reference. Found out it's the same volume. I yep. read this before. You talk about Twilight Zone. Yep. So let's go to Brigham Young, the one, you know, no, no Mormons like, but they all need, in a sense. I should say Salt Lake branch of the yeah. LDS. They can't, they can't do Mormon. away with them, that's for sure. <laughs> How do you do it? Yeah. Well, here's a tale of two Brigham's. <laughs> All right, in a talk called Eternal Punishment, Mormonism, in quotations, etc., given January 12th, 1862, Brigham Young says this. I'm going to skip around. I read you the full quote, but I'll put the citation in the footnotes. He says, I will say a few words in regard to your belief in being led, guided, and directed by one man. Now, he will say that that one man is God the Father, which, of course, to him is Michael, that who became Adam, who's the father of Jesus. But through Jesus, and then through uh, um, Joseph Smith. And keep in mind, even Brigham Young, I think I put it in the show notes. I don't know if I mentioned it. 
audibly yet. Brigham Young called himself an apostle of Joseph Smith. That's how high Joseph Smith was regarded. He was kind of the prophet. But um, he says this, What a pity it would be if we were led by one man to utter destruction. Are you afraid of this? I am more afraid that this people have so much confidence in their leaders that they will not inquire for themselves of God, whether they are led by him. I am fearful they settle down in a state of blind self-security, trusting their eternal destiny in the hands of their leaders with a reckless confidence that in itself would thwart the purposes of God in their salvation and weaken that influence they could give to their leaders did they know for themselves by the revelations of Jesus that they are led in the right way. Let every man and woman know by the whispering of the Spirit of God to themselves, the whispering, whether their leaders are walking in the path the Lord dictates or not, or not. Mm-hmm. This has been my exhortation continually. Yeah. What's so there, there's an expectation. Leaders can be flawed and go astray. And go astray. So, yeah, and, I mean, kind of like the yeah. the be a good Berean sort of yep. a thing. Like, you need to hold your leaders accountable. But instead, it's, instead of be good Bereans, go to the Word. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's be good, quote-unquote, Bereans and get your own revelations right. of Jesus. Yep, yep. Uh, so, once again, that's January 12th, 1862. Yep. Okay. This one that is cited by Woodso, who for sure knows this other quote, but doesn't quote this in his answer to when is a prophet speaking as a prophet. Here's one. That, uh, it's called true character of God, erroneous ideas entertained towards him. Oh, so uh, this is February 23rd, 1862. So a month and what? 11 days later or so. And this is what he says. The Lord almighty leads this church And he will never suffer you to be led astray if you are found doing your duty. You may go home and sleep as sweetly as a babe in its mother's arms as to any danger of your leaders leading you astray. For if they should try to do so, the Lord would quickly sweep them from the earth. Your leaders are trying to live their religion as far as I am capable of doing so. Question mark. I'm not sure exactly what the correct wording should have been. Yes, I do. The power of God is with me continually, and I never mean to live an hour without it. And yet, once again, remember that previous quote, he said, this has been my exhortation continually until a month later when he says the opposite. So even with Brigham, what is the authority? What is the authority, right? It's as good as scripture, but apparently, once again, even in these quotes, First emphasis is on charismatic revelations by the whisperings of the Spirit. And the second one is, rest assured, we won't lead you astray. Trust us. Yeah. And same president, same month. And, and this is literally every doctrine. I mean, let me just throw one other. Earlier Mormonism, back when they are literally gathering into Missouri for the New Jerusalem that was revealed to be in the place where Eden supposedly was. I don't know if you guys knew this. According to LDSism, the Garden of Eden was in the state of Missouri in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the flood, and then the boat floated over to the Near East. Yeah. So that's that's where. So they're gathering there, and they also thought there was a place of Nephites and whatever. And uh, so they're gathering to prepare for the second coming, which they're seeing is coming really soon, within a generation. And you even have LDS missionaries going into the South. And preaching that Jesus is coming before you die, you better repent 
and believe in Mormonism and come to Missouri. And all the missionaries everywhere are trying to gather all the Mormons to Missouri yep. to build this temple and, and welcome Jesus. Listen to this, right? So this is um, from an official publication at the time, right? Uh, in a t- uh, circular called To the Saints Scattered Abroad. Quote, Our hopes, our expectations, our glory, and our reward all depend on our building up Zion according to the testimony of the prophets. Remember, one of the articles of faith is in the literal gathering to this place, Zion being in in Missouri. For unless Zion is built, our hopes perish, our expectations fail, our prospects are are blasted, our salvation withers, and God will come and smite the whole earth with a curse. So, and yet it failed. They didn't build the temple. Even as late as Lorenzo Snow, they're saying, don't you probably this generation, we're going to go back to Missouri, rebuild the temple. And now in this recent general conference, the gathering is all about, it's all spiritual. Yeah. It's completely spiritualized and it's all about temple work. Um, and yet they can say, it was, this was doctrine then. This is doctrine now. They'll say that it should be based on the canonical scriptures. They'll include the Bible. That should be evidence enough at the point that scripture isn't determinative, even in their system. I guess my point is this. When we talked about the family proclamation of the world, we, we showed that there's, they have not defined the canonical status of what a proclamation is. Mm-hmm. They will point people to it all the time. But once again, it's founded on irrevocable doctrine. It's not the doctrine itself. So even that can't be a standard. We still don't know its place relative to the standard works. Even if they did come out and by common consent, vote of the church, added the two recent family proclamation and this one on the restoration. Could Would that really stop them from changing? Yeah. I don't even think it would. Because at the end of the day, even their standard is standardless. Yeah. I don't know how to... Yeah. It, I mean, it's there's no foundation whatsoever. Nope. Whereas even Rome, right, with tradition, you know, Rome, even with its vague tradition is not coming out in preaching polytheism. Yeah. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? I know we, we there's often a, an attempt to to make all errors the same and there's a sense in which there's a pattern to all error. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that there's no pattern, but notice even with this pope that doesn't seem to even believe anything. He's not saying there's multiple gods you can become one. Yeah. Not, not yet, anyway. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess if there is one, it would be a communist like him. Yeah, but, but, but that does, you know, like that, that does get to the point of, of course, what our perspective would be from an evangelical Christian perspective, especially, is if you're not tethered to the Bible as that absolute standard of truth, you are susceptible to drifting into all sorts of error. And we would look at First Timothy and Second Timothy, and we would see very clear instruction there, as you heard us read, that the way that Timothy is to guard the deposit that's been given to him, the way that he is to protect sound doctrine and make sure that he is holding fast to it is by holding fast to the scriptures. I mean, you can't read those two books and not see 
uh, just an immense number of references to the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, mm-hmm. the Bible, the Bible, um, no, knowing the scriptures, holding fast to them, reading them publicly, publicly together, preaching the word, which of course is the scriptures. And so uh, you got to understand from a credo Christian perspective, the, the Bible has always been the means of God's absolute revelation of himself to a world that desperately needs to know him. Um, and that was developed very early on in Jewish tradition, as especially Moses began writing things down that became the the means by which God's people knew that they could they could really know him was by knowing those words, treasuring them, holding them uh, in, in their hearts. I mean, look at Deuteronomy 6, as we've referenced again and again. Yep. This was central to a Jewish faith, was to was to memorize the scriptures, know the scriptures. Uh, children in a Jewish tradition would have been memorizing the Torah from a very young age. And so all of this is based on the scriptures, and, and that doesn't change. I mean, all, all the way through the Jewish tradition, you get into Second Temple Judaism, and it's almost like this, if it, it doesn't become more important, but if it could, it's almost like it does, because Ezra comes in, and he's the one who establishes many of the Second Temple Judaistic practices, and Ezra's all about preaching the word. Yep. I mean, this is what he does to his people. He was a man learned in the scriptures, is the way that it, he is described in the first chapters there in, in Ezra. And uh, I, I love toward the end of Ezra, I, I, I'm not looking at it right now, I think it's Ezra, Ezra chapter eight. Uh, the, the pinnacle moment of the restoration of God's people is when they literally construct a pulpit and Ezra reads the scriptures and explains them. And then they trade off with other men just to show that this isn't just about Ezra. This isn't about some big prophetic kind of a figure that we're all going to love and worship. No, no, no. The text makes clear they're trading off with all these just different men reading the scriptures and explaining the scriptures. And so God's people are always meant to be a people who are under this written word that he's providing to his people that is being uh, gathered into a canon uh, on the basis of of particular standards, which are essentially to to decipher whether or not this is a, a text that is from God, or is it just from man? Um, is this something that's breathed out by God? Yes, written by men, but breathed out by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, for the church to hold fast to the truth once for all delivered to the saints. And so it's the same with the Old Testament canon as with the New Testament canon. We get this canon so that we can know who God is. And of course, we believe in a sovereign God who in his providential power oversees the whole process of this canon being uh, developed and preserved for his people to know him. And so for us, we do have an absolute standard that is unchanging. Um, now, it, this is a very important point to make, and and uh, Bavink, Herman Bavink makes this point so well in the beginning of his uh, four-volume dogmatics. Um, he says, a truth confessed by the church is not a dogma because the church recognizes it, but solely because it rests on God's authority. That's important. Still, religious dogma is always a combination of divine authority and churchly confession. Dogmas, and of course, that's just doctrine, are truths acknowledged by a particular group, though the church's dogmas have authority only if they are truly God's truths. Church teaching, this is important, church teaching is never identical with divine truth itself. That's such an important point, right. because what we're, we're what we're saying is, God's word 
and God's truth, his revelation of himself is the absolute objective truth. The church is called to interpret that truth, and knowing that we are finite, we we ought to approach the the word of God with humility, knowing that we're not going to have the perfect interpretation of it. And so that's why church teaching can't ever be identical with divine truth itself. So our claim is that the scripture is the divine truth of God, and that we can know him through our study of the scriptures. We're not going to do that perfectly, but that's why for every Protestant evangelical, we see that as the the joyous challenge yep. of diving into the text because we know that God has revealed himself there and and he's revealed himself through words that can be studied and understood. And so, you know, both of us would take a historical grammatical approach to scripture for that very reason, because it's only in a historical grammatical approach that you actually have an objective meaning. Yep. That is, that is implicit in the author's intention of what he was seeking to convey. So we believe that the Holy Spirit was inspiring men to write down words, and those words have meaning in them. And so we want to discover what that meaning is. So what was Paul trying to say to Timothy? Um, that's what I want to discover in this text. And if I can discover what that meaning is, then I have discovered what God is saying to his people, even right. still today through this text by deciphering that meaning and then applying that meaning to my life. Uh, so I can look at Paul's command to Timothy to uh, hold fast to the the truth, and I can discern what does Paul mean by that? What is the truth? Let me look at the context of the passage. Let me look at the flow of the words. Let me boil down all the grammatical details that my little finite brain can uh, can manage to to. to deal with. And and then let me consider the historical context. Let me consider who Paul is. Let me consider who Timothy is. Let me dive into that. And I know that that sounds like a complex process, but it's a worthwhile process that Christians ought to ought to invest themselves in. But that's also why we have a, a idea of a learned clergy, because we want to we want to receive Absolutely. the word that is preached from men who are devoting hours upon hours of their week to to study those kind of details so that they can teach those details to us. Because the power is not in the man who is preaching, the power is in the text that's being explained. And so um, but but for every Christian, there's basic principles of interpretation that you can learn that uh, that do really change the way that you read the Bible, um, mm-hmm. just to start looking at not as like, how can I get a feeling from a particular turn of a phrase, but to just ask, what does it mean? Like, right. what what does it say? Right. What does Paul mean? Mm-hmm. You know, it, and, and when you just start asking those kind of simple, simple, simple questions and read the text in light of it, what you come to find is the Bible is very clear. Now, one thing that Bob Inc. also says here in the introduction that I think is so helpful but listen to what Bobbing says here. He says, God cannot be known by us apart from revelation received in faith. Dogmatic seeks nothing other than to be true to the faith knowledge given in this revelation. Dogmatics is thus not the science of faith or of religion, but the science about God. The task of the dogmatician is to think God's thoughts after him and to trace their unity. This is a task that must be done in the confidence that God has spoken in humble submission to the church's teaching tradition and for communicating the gospel's message to the world. Now, here's why I want to draw that out. Um, we, we would acknowledge as well that regeneration 
is necessary for someone to receive the words of revelation the way that they ought to be received. And so we're not denying anything subjective. Um, We do believe that the Bible has to be received with faith. And uh, if you don't have faith and trust that these are the very words of God, which is only possible in someone who has been born again of the Spirit, you're not going to receive the revelation of God anyway. And uh, one thing that I... I really believe is a is a clear mark of whether or not someone has been born again of God is whether or not they're trusting the Bible as the Word of God, uh, because that is a mark that I think you find in every true Christian. Every true Christian comes to treasure the words, to treasure these as something more than just ancient things written down mm-hmm. by random men thousands of years ago, but to actually see, no, God is speaking to me through these words. Even and, where it's uh, uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. And, and perhaps especially where it's uncomfortable, yeah. especially where you don't like it and it rubs it rubs you the wrong way, but you recognize, no, this is an authoritative word and I'm not the authority. The Bible is the authority and uh, and to receive it in that sense. So there, there there is absolutely a faith component here that we can't ignore or deny. But that whether or not a person believes that the Bible is the word of God does not change the objective fact that if there is a God, and if that God has revealed himself to the world in written words, then objectively those words are the words of God, whether or not you want to receive them as such. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway. Right, and that, that is the basis of the objective truth claims we make, not the basis of our subjective confidence in them. Yeah. That makes sense, yeah. right? This is this is part of the frustration in terms of interfaith dialogue because Mormonism is distinct from Christianity, and we don't. I mean, I'm not saying Christian. All the blame is is on Mormons, <laughs> but I will say they haven't helped themselves. And I think today, if nothing else, shows that yeah. right from the top, not just the bottom. But you know, they are they make objective claims completely based on their subjective confidence, their subjective feelings. Yeah. Whereas the truth of Christianity, regardless of how committed we are subjectively, is based on the truthfulness of the objective claims that regardless of whether someone in the post-mortem community accepts them or not, they're at least clear as a standard. Yep. At least on the Protestant side of the line. Yeah. And and can be understood even if not trusted in. And and this is what kind of bugs me um, in some of the post-Mormon treatment of the Bible is that they jump to liberal methods that assume at the door that the Bible is a mishmash of contradictory anything. Yeah, which right? is a postmodern impulse. Postmodern um, and, you know and, because yeah. the post the postmodern impulse is to reject the the possibility of a meta narrative. Um, right. it's to it's to uh, really disintegrate the Bible into a, a million pieces mm-hmm. of of disjointed material rather than to recognize the beautiful unity that is actually there in the scriptures that has been pointed out by theologians you know, biblically throughout the church's history. And uh, boy, like they need to go read some biblical theology, (laughs) you know, and just see the continuity Mm -hmm. within the Bible. Um, There is a tremendous amount of continuity and, uh, and any perceived contradiction is, is just a, 
a result of bad hermeneutics, um, you know, and, and that can be shown if they're willing to think it through and understand how Christian theology and the way that we understand the Bible as a whole deals with all of these perceived issues that they like to call out, but often they're unwilling to consider it. They're, they just want to take the cheap route and say, well, this, 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 you know, Bart Ehrman said this and blah, 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 you know, right. and, and, and it's, it's, uh, there, there's nothing to it if they're willing to actually hear the argument out. Exactly. And, and it, honestly, I don't even know that they see and or care of the arguments going the other way. Uh, you got to think like, okay, you have Brigham Young. He brings them out here. There's already this charismatic bias. And then you have this leadership that they don't need the written word. They, I mean, these are seekers ultimately, right? Yeah. Um, and so they don't need the Bible or text or creeds or confessions or catechisms. They're, they got it just immediately, right? And so it creates this culture of smugnerance. Right. Oh yeah. That they are. They know. Are completely certain. They know, and it's actually a virtue. The how how little learning they have. Yep. And and then all of a sudden you hit this point where certain LDS are going to study at Harvard, or at Brandeis, or right where those universities have taken the liberal turn, mm-hmm. and some of them long ago, like Harvard was. Oh yeah. It's debatable whether Harvard ever was, but for sure. Once the Unitarianism took over, right? All these liberal methods came in that were Trinity denying at the start. You can see how LDS would feel comfortable in that. Mm-hmm. And now they go from completely the subjective side of the mind to this completely rationalistic old liberal side of the mind mm-hmm. that assumes no mosaic authorship. Yeah. For example, as if they could prove that based on their own method anyway. Yeah. But, uh, right, how can you, they know Moses wrote none of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. But but they, they assume it as the method, and they carve it up to a million pieces as sign authors based on whatever. Yep. And here's the thing. They never interact with what's been going on, say, at Southern. Yep. Or at Westminster. Or B.B. Warfield. Or, right. And so their impression of believing Christians is either on social media or with this... And this is not meant to be a dig of, of people who don't have degrees either. I'm not saying Christianity goes the other way and it's just this arrogant right, yeah. uh, intellectual class. But at the same time, you know, if they interact with it, it's with uh, a more, what, shallow evangelicalism? Right. Uh, you yeah. know, or they'll see Bill and I debate Ken Ham. Yeah. They think that's Christians. Yeah. And they don't, they have no concept, whether in the church or out, of the intellectual tradition the mm-hmm. christianity not only we invented the university system yeah yeah <laughs> like, it's not just like oh that we had in the university system it's christians of the middle ages that invented it yeah yep. <laughs> right yep. and the, why why the university because if you believe in one god who created all things there's nothing outside of the peer view that's not theological yeah it's not like theology corrupted the all the sciences theology was the necessary mother of all the sciences yep. and so yeah they don't they don't see bobbing they don't see B.B. Warfield. They, they, they literally think, okay, it's the liberals who are scholarly, and then they try to merge that with the complete subjective smugnerance of LDS culture that's anti-intellectual. Yep. And, that's, and that's what's weird is even you look at the 15, right? Lawyers, businessmen, um, like uh, I've got to say, M. Russell Ballard, you know, his businesses with Tim Ballard for, the, yeah. you know, for a long time, yeah. you know? <laughs> Oh, very yeah. fruitful business partnership. Yeah. yeah. Very patriotic, calling America to the Mormon covenant. Anyway, mm. um, you have, um, right, Utah Supreme Court justice. You have whatever. 
I guarantee if you if you asked a question, a particular question that took specialized knowledge or, or Dr. Nelson, right? A specialized knowledge in their field, they'd recognize it should be based on the best understanding and arguments within that field. But all of a sudden, when it comes to theology, it's fuzzy. It's fuzzy feel-good stuff. It's the Holy Spirit whispering, always whispering to them, their feelings and what they feel. Yeah. So there is a complete dichotomy between the rational and the irrational. Yep. And the irrational starts to look a lot like anti-rational. Mm -hmm. And so their rationalism is framed in the irrational. You can see how it is postmodern before postmodern. Yep. It sets the stage that Derrida filled. Yeah. Right? yeah. And and that's why there's no trust in words whatsoever. It's almost as if, you know, things spiritual could never be communicated in human language. And so what is what looks like piety to them is at the door going to be heresies of Christianity. It's mm. going to be radical mysticism, pietism, quietism, all these things. Yep. And they'll just try to reinterpret the LDS temple in that structure. Yep. They have no concept of how we can recite in the Nicene Creed the best of our thinking with um, with the most uh, impassioned plea of our hearts at the same time. Yeah, To them, it's two worlds that never meet. Mm-hmm. And you got to turn on one or turn off the other. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's one of the things that often I think comes across as almost a shock when uh, LDS people come into our our building is uh, when they hear the way that we preach in our church, they realize this is logic, this is doctrine, this is scripture on fire. Yeah. You know, it, it's just like there's a difference in oh, the yeah. way that an evangelical Christian church loves and treasures the objective truth of the word of God. Yep. And uh, I think it comes as a shock to LDS people oh, yeah. when they come into our doors, which which is just an invite, you know, come, come on, please. You know, we're here. If you're in Provo, yeah. come on, check us out. Yeah. Um, if you're up in Magda, go check, check it out. Um, yeah. We'd love to have you visit us on a Sunday and, and, and talk through some stuff with us, but I got to cut us off because we are over time here and I know we could probably go for another hour. No problem, but, uh, I got to get home. So it is what it is. Let's see. see. (laughs) What's next time? I haven't. Yeah. Next week we're going to be looking at Hebrews, Hebrews one to six. And then, yeah, so it's nice. They, they divided Hebrews into two weeks. So that's good. At least (laughs) looking forward to that. We will see you next time. Thanks for sticking with us.